Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Hopeful Influence podcast. My name is Matt, one of the hosts here at Hopeful Influence. And uh, we are in the fourth part of our uh, look at AI and what AI is going to mean for us in the future and how we can engage as hope-filled leaders. We start off this next episode uh, kind of teasing out a little bit more about what we've been looking at. And so we look at the body, soul, and spirit, whether AI can have those things, what those things are for us. Um, We'd look at needing a structured community uh, that will come together to enrich the development of AI for our future, how we can get involved, how we can be proactive and how we can read up and engage. And so as we start to come in to land on some of these things, the real question for us is how can we get involved and what is best in making a hopeful future that looks like uh, the kind of future that God has for us um, moving forward? And so uh, we'll dive straight back in to our conversation with Eve. We hope you're enjoying the podcast and we're really grateful that you're along for the ride. Okay, here we go. How can we do a little segue into um, body, soul, and spirit? Um, just because the um, and, and this is probably one of these ones where we just we know, you know we don't know the answers and we're not going to quite get there. But my default thinking, and and I guess I suspect people generally could relate to this is is that you know what makes us human well well body soul and spirit is it would be one way of talking about that so there's a physicality our body um there's a soul you know our sort of uh, mind emotions um capacity to choose uh, but there's also a spirit and you know some of you talk about the heart you know different language uh, around that but that at some level we've got um uh, you know, there, there's some some kind of existence that is that is spiritual that cannot be seen, that somehow sits beneath, um, you know, just the way I process information or experience feelings or, or, or physical stuff in the world. There's something deeper that's a bit kind of hidden, and 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 the, what happens in our human experience is that as we you know, we experience stuff from the outside, so we have physical touch and smell and feeling the physical bit, and then we have this, this more internalised processing of that. And so we, 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 we think and we imagine and we kind of, uh, we see things and we respond to it. We have, we have emotional feedback and, um, you know, we begin to choose, make decisions and navigate our way through life. But, but there's this thing un- underneath that. And, and it's the sort of thing underneath it is that, you know, and, and you know, you think you think about forms of addiction, for example. It's like, you know, the addiction might be the drug or the thing the person you know watches on television or the eating pattern or whatever it is. Um, but what's going on is that it's connecting with something deep within us, and and and, and the longing, you know, within us to be more fully human and to experience um, fulfilment uh, and to. Uh, to know that there's more to life than what we what the regular everyday has for us and, and to somehow connect spiritually at this deeper level of like yes there's something more um you know we have heroin addicts in our church grounds who hang out regularly and you know um, we've journeyed with a number of them over the years and 
I often think that what they've, you know, they've spiritually they've kind of tapped into this longing for, um, you know, joyful connection with God ultimately. And but that the heroin is sort of simulating this experiential thing, but it's got such a hold on them because of the longings of the spirit, the heart, you know, and that's why, you know, getting people off drugs is such a difficult thing because it's connected at such a deep level. So so there's this thing, this spirit, this this deepest essence of who we are. I mean, we, we are, you know, fully human means, means all of that. It means physical, the physical resurrection of Jesus, the bodily form, the emotions, the minds, the, the thoughts, the decision, but it's also the spiritual sense. What's what's the what's the thought process on on the spiritual? You know, are we are we just with, with robots and AI, are we just creating the physical and the kind of the solely bit, the sort of mind, emotions, decision making? Are, are we is there any claim? to the third element, the sort of the, the spiritual, the life, the, the distinct entity before God. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's difficult because I think what we've done is we've we've focused on a kind of snapshot of mental processing at a particular point in our time in particular geographies and tried to copy it. And it's very deracinated from how we have come through time and how we have developed to where we are now. So um, when you start thinking about how our brains developed, and to get back to your gestation idea, there's quite a lot of complexity that we just simply don't understand. But we certainly know that because of this ability to manipulate in 3D, there are lots of kinds of bits of brain architecture which are specifically about embodiment and how do we move and flourish in a 3D world, as well as a whole load of processing, which is right now fighting off a bug in my body or um, starting to notice there's a cancer or um, healing a, a scab on my knee or warning me that there's something on the road outside that might be stopping at my front door. There's a whole load of stuff that we don't even know about. And if you think about the first three years of our lives, we have very little recollection of what happened then. But we know from being with children when they're that age that they are learning their socks off. But they learn so much, there's no way there would be room in our brains to keep that plus everything else they're going to need to learn for the rest of their lives. So we tend to roll that up into some, you know, heuristics and unconscious processing and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, processes of efficiency of the brain, really. Um, so it's also quite terrifying to think that we're only copying a tiny bit of what we're aware of. Um, and we really have no handle on all the other things that are going on that are also brain processes and human intelligence that we, we couldn't even reach because they're so hidden. So um, there is so much complexity that we are ignoring and, and could never copy, by the way. And that's when the interesting idea about junk code as obfuscation comes in, um, because maybe we're not supposed to be copying everything. Um, maybe that's part of the, the thing as well. But the, the thing about yearning and spirituality is that that's why I think meaning making is such a pivotal part of our soul code. Um, because it is that sort of homing instinct to try and get back to our creator and have that sense of wholeness and union. Um, but it depends on what your philosophy is of, of how that emerges. Um, it's definitely in our design. It's definitely a gift from God. 
um, the secular equivalent would be consciousness. So some people will talk about that as a version of spirit or, or something to do with personality. Um, it's certainly meanness how I feel about my lived experience. Um, and there are kind of two ideas about that. One is that it's something that spontaneously emerges when your brain needs it to. So when you have evolved to the extent to which you need to be able to have that kind of data and that kind of supervision, if you like, in your head, um, then consciousness just becomes a, a thing that happens. Um, so on that basis, uh, any computer that had enough artificial brain in it would reach a point at which it would need to develop consciousness. Um, so people like um, Thomas Nagel, who've argued about consciousness, and he, he wrote this very famous paper called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And he talks about batness and the kind of, we don't know what it's like to be a bat, but the bat does. And we have a sense it's got a consciousness, bat battiness, in the same way that we've got personhood. Um, so, of course, on that basis, you could have robotness. You could have a robot who comes to church every Sunday and worships as authentically it appears as everyone else because it's got its own sense of what it means to be it. Um, and if it had a propensity for meaning-making in its coding or in or that had emerged as part of a kind of byproduct of the complexity of its coding, then, of course, it would it would have yearning. Um, that, that would just be a function, you know, in the same way that it is for us. Um, so I think it, it, this raises just such deep questions about why are we here? What is our code about? You know, what, what is the point of it all? Um, and do we have a monopoly on that? Um, because we're learning so much about what the function of these things seems to be in our flourishing that it makes us question whether we should be the only people that have these kinds of functionalities. And, you know, there are even questions about whether rocks have consciousness, but it's just such a slow time, sense of time that you can't kind of see. <laughs> we, we know already that the mushrooms are communicating with the trees and, you know, we know all kinds of stuff is going on um, in terms of communication and, and sense um, at all kinds of different levels in all kinds of different sort of time periods. You know, there is there is more than we ever thought was possible because uh, the creation is just so extraordinary. So, so wouldn't it be possible um, for some of these things also to be present if if you have stolen the basic I design idea of learning? What 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 wouldn't a thing learn? Um, because we've learned all of this. Because mm. if learning is your superpower, then you learn everything that you possibly can because that helps you continue. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one possible pushback might be that the other examples that we're giving are biological. Um, and so there's a, the, the physicality and the... So, Jude, if we cloned you, tell me about the status of your clone. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> but my clone is biological, right? Yeah. So my clone is, it's got the same capacities that I have. Is it the same soul as you? Well, right, right. So, well, well, and again, it depends on your definitions of these things, doesn't it? But um, in terms of that, the clone, the other Jude, should we call them? Jude 2, Jude 2.0. <laughs> the, 
<laughs> I'm starting to understand why this is a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, Jude, we could clone you and we could augment yeah. you. Yeah, no, I, I'm there. No, we could cyborg you. I'm there. I'm there on the thought process. <laughs> but presumably, and who would want to do that? So clearly this is a parallel universe. But the, um, uh, you know, that, that, that clone would have the capacity to to think in, in, in all the ways that, that I would and experience emotion all the rest of it. But yeah, you're right, the data that you give it, the data that you give that clone will presumably, um, you know, what we know about the way the brain wires itself and all the rest of it and, and, and the development pathways, you know, it's going to be, it's going to develop in a different way with different data in, as it were. But right, in terms, like identical twins and not... But in terms of the soul... Yeah. Dim- yeah, right, they're different, they're different. But in terms of the soul dimension... My working assumption, and, and this, you know, we're into the, the depths of you know, human understanding here, don't we say limits, please. But the, uh, my, my, my working assumption is that they are a different person, you know, just as the way an identical twin or whatever. You know, there's, a different, there's something fundamental spiritually, and I want to go back to that, that, that word. And, you know, so there is a different, there is fundam- you know, before God even, there is a different person, there's a different uh, living being. But 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 he's gonna will experience the world and process the world and physically experience the world in ways that are very similar to Jude one point zero, but Jude two point zero is a different person before God. And also, even though Jude two point zero has the same memory bank, it doesn't have the same physical. If it's a new cloned body, it won't have the physical memory in the body that your Ooh. body does. Right. So then this gets into this really interesting territory about the choice points we've made. So we decided to pursue artificial humanizing, not by cloning. We decided to do it by replicating brains. And now there are all these stories about Elon Musk and others wanting to upload our brains to computers so that we can live forever. So would you still be Jude if you were your brain in a machine? So this is really interesting for theologians because we have to ask some really sharp questions about what are our defaults and assumptions about organic matter? Because we had assumed, uh, and I believe rightly, that nothing manufactured could have a soul because that's not in our gift. God gives us souls. And so far, we have assumed that that tends to correlate with being organic. We don't know if rocks have souls. Many traditions think they do. They're certainly material they're not organic um we don't quite know how they were created well we sort of know how they came into being and we we know god kind of pulled the trigger as it were you could argue that god pulled the trigger on this as well if his creation is creating in the same way that his creation in the stars is what has created us in terms of the elements produced to be part of our manufacturing So it starts asking some really, really difficult questions about what are our assumptions about where our humanness comes from and what status it has? And do we feel that it has to be the whole of us? In the Christian tradition, it's the whole of us that is resurrected. It's not just our brains that get kind of shoved off into a, you know, celestial robot body. Um, Neither is it our zombie bodies without our capacity to think. So... It is really difficult because we've already started skewing the debate by the choices we've made about what we'll copy and how we'll copy it. And, and, I, and I guess that's why Christians need to get stuck in because 
it's, it's slightly odd, the decisions that have been made for all kinds of important historical reasons, but it means we've got to a point where we're copying the wrong bits for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> so we need to have a bit of a think about if actually we thought God had just sent us a memo to say, right, you know, make the best damn copy you can, let's see, what would we do? We, we do it routinely by having children and we try and raise them in the best way we possibly can in order to be faithful not even replicas, but um, future and better versions of ourselves, but without all the kind of wiring them up to various things that make them excellent at chess or immortal. Um, and that's why theologians need to get stuck into this, because these questions are so difficult and so deep that we can't just have a few tech pros solving this. We need all the philosophers, all the theologians everybody to think crikey you know what on earth does this mean because we haven't really had to think like this before and the best thinking we've got is sci-fi you know which is great but it's written for entertainment not for policy making yes although it's kind of the imagination has been stirred often you know um let, let, let's just say that you know god probably isn't absent from all the um, the stirrings of our imagination you know, that has led to the sci-fi that we enjoy. Now, clearly some of it is a bit more warped and, and, and self-centred leaning. But, but you know, the Holy Spirit's at work, isn't he? And kind of helping us to know. But unlike in any other, I mean, I'm not sure there was a huge amount of literature written about what might happen if we had a Copernican revolution and what might happen if we, you know, cured the plague and what might happen if we invented telescopes or, you know, the loom. I mean, we had ideas about that, but we didn't have an extraordinary genre devoted to helping us think this through. What is God's greatest gift through sci-fi is that we actually already know what our options are. We actually already know all the ways this could play out. We just hadn't thought that was advice about public policy. We did think it was entertainment. Um, and so while you have to have a bit of a pinch of salt about narratives in entertainment, there is something about us taking that a bit more seriously than we have. Mm. Actually, that used to be a bit of a section of the library we thought all the geeks went to, but we need to get all that out and get them around the table and say, crikey, what happens when robots do this? What happens when aliens get involved? What happens you know, to humans and to faith and to all these things? What do we do around eugenics? I mean, all these topics have been written up um, and played out in all kinds of permutations and versions and scenarios that are actually hugely helpful for helping us think through what might these futures be? And what would God think might be productive ways to take this forward? Yeah, love it, love it. So your, your, your book, um, your book is essentially calling for, um, uh, you know, a, a much um, sort of, a, you know, a structured um, community, uh, you know, with, with particular parameters to, to come together uh, and to really think through um, how do we help AI to develop in ways that are more akin to the fullness of our own uh, humanity? Um, and, and that we, as we develop legislation, as we, you know, because, you know, we can put legislation to control how the technology is being developed. It doesn't have to be developed in these little silos of market competitive, um, you know, hidden, you know, forms does it you know it could be developed in a different way and if the governments of the world um you know can grab you know grab hold of this in that way that we, we could create you're, you're saying we, we could create a much better way of developing this technology that would be richer fuller more akin 
to our own humanity and we, we, we could have the and, and where we could really engage with the proper safeguards for its development um, by thinking uh, more humanly and for us as, as Christian contributors we've got a particular thing that we want to bring to that that conversation but that's how you want to see things steered into the future I mean it's a big argument it's a big 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 you know desire to have isn't it but um but that that's how that's what you're mapping for us isn't it thank you that's such a beautiful summary and i think the two kind of secular hooks to hang it on are about biomimicry and risk management so a lot of innovation in particularly engineering but also in medicine has been about very careful scrutiny of how these problems are already solved in nature um, because nature through evolution has got a lot of tried and tested complexity which seems to solve a lot of problems that also crop up in other artificial environments um, and what's interesting about our AIing is we have not really stopped and looked properly at human design we've just taken the kind of easy and quick bits and replicated that but if we were say looking at the teasels to do you know, Velcro, or if we were looking at humpback whale fins to, you know, reduce the drag on turbines, we would be scrutinising with incredible care the complexity of human design in order to copy it better. So there's something about calling us to account as scientists to say, you know, this is not a high enough threshold <laughs> of design intention, and we need to do that better professionally. And then there is something to say, and by the way, Given that we are quite interested in learning from nature, isn't it interesting that some of the things we've now started doing in AI are also properties that humans have, of course, because it's about artificial intelligence. So let's take more seriously the risk mitigations that have been set up in our own design and take those incredibly seriously, because they're not just accidents, they're not just kind of spontaneous, randomised functionalities they seem to be themselves purposeful and meaningful around what they are trying to do in our species. And I have no idea how on earth you would code intuition into an AI, but I think in having those conversations, we would get better sorts of design going into AI in the same way that I have no idea how you would prioritize the coding of which religions it should take more seriously than others. But we should at least have that conversation. Um, and so I don't know whether this is the most extraordinarily terrible and dreadful intervention I could possibly make. But what I'm trying to do is say, well, can we at least have this conversation? And maybe if enough wise people whose trade has been junk code for thousands of years, if we can get the experts in the cure of souls in the room, they might have smarts we hadn't even thought would be relevant. Great, great. So this is not this is not a bunch of Christians on the margin, banging drums, saying sort of just arbitrarily slow down with the technology. Or but what we're saying is that we're saying is from a very um, you know coherent place that actually the the way that the technology is developing at the moment is inadequate. Um, for the reasons you know we've outlined just there and and, and more from, from earlier there's an inadequacy to the direction of travel and we need to enrich our development and 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 let's open the door to what that enrichment looks like and actually part of that enrichment means faith communities and other groups participating more thoroughly in more structured ways and, and we're probably talking about 
ultimately probably going to get a, getting to places around government legislation and 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 real decision you know, teeth decision making but but you're in, we're inviting um faith groups and all sorts of perhaps unexpected parties to the table to help us get this development right absolutely and even christianity has some smarts on regulation because you can't get through a gospel without shed loads of stuff about the pharisees and the law and actually, we know that regulation is always a last resort. And we know that you need a lot less regulation and fewer laws if you've got the culture right, if you've got the community right. So this panic to run to get the lawyers around the table is missing a vital step that Jesus would hold us to account about to say, well, look, before we start rushing about deciding on exactly what your protocols are about food and the Sabbath, let's figure out what love means and what loving your neighbour means. And actually, we know that law can be an important part of the jigsaw puzzle, but actually we know there's a lot of other conversations you need to have first about communities of accountability, you know, just general principles of life, you know, all of those things. And commercially speaking, we know that the more and more red tape there is, the more and more regulation is, the more expensive everything gets, and the more there is a kind of drag on the system. Um, and that's the point where we've got to an AI is we're going to need so much legislation, it's going to end up just stymieing the whole thing um, because we'll just be slapping on bits of random law when we think about it in a panic. Um, actually, if we got the design right, we'd need less law. Um, so some of this about saying is steady on with inviting all these lawyers to your conference. Let's start with theologians and end up with the lawyers and you'll probably get better outcomes that way. What do you think... Elon Musk would say to that argument? I think he'd agree, because what I'm noticing is the people who are absolutely at the coalface on this are in a flat panic about it. Um, and they do feel they've lost control um, because all kinds of unintended consequences are happening. Because if you design something that's designed to be smarter than you, unexpected things are going to occur. And because we're very fearful um, and because we're used to conflict and you know, narratives about what happens in these scenarios, that is leading to a kind of wholesale panic and a defensive reaction. And again, we've seen that throughout history, and we know that's not always very wise. Um, it might feel sensible as a way of managing risk, but it is about slowing down, thinking about love, thinking about getting the design right. And I think it'll be interesting to see if my book ever gets heard, because I'm not a tech bro, and I think... If you're not tech bro, it's quite hard to get heard in this space. Female theologians writing on AI, you know, is not a good look. Um, but I would hope that if enough of us can say, well, dang it, you know, this religion thing it isn't just a kind of random life choice. It's vital to this whole operation because actually we're the experts in human design and what you do to try and keep that on track. So if anyone in the world ever in history is trying to copy humans, they should come to the experts. I mean, I agree with you, again, as, as a vicar, for sure. But I, I, my fear, and I, Elon Musk, you know, who knows what you think, but I, I use him as an example because my, my concern is when I, I feel from his narrative, I know you talk about fear there and, and, and the, the legislation and, and the rest of it, but what I sense from his narrative and others who would stand in his... Um, uh, position, as it were, is actually they they just want to they just want to run as fast as they can 
with the technology. And, and, and my concern is that, you know, we all, we, you know, going back to the meaning and, and the meaning making and the storytelling, you know, we all have this thing within us, in part of the humanity that we've been talking about, is this, this, this sort of wanting to be known, this sort of self-fulfillment, actualization. We want to, to, have, to, to, to be significant in the world, you know. And, and when I look at some of these world stage characters who are kind of leading the way, as it were, connecting back to the hopeful influence uh, narrative a little bit, you know, actually what I, what I think I pick up is just a desire to sort of imprint their own story and their own identity onto the human story and, and, and to, to achieve significance in a sort of, in a general sense, and to, you know, to be the first pioneer, the first man to step on the moon or, you know, whatever it is. But, um, you know, you know they're, they're much less concerned with, 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 with what the actual but, but of course, but the great thing is that we know this is not new. It's not news. There have always been incredible pioneers who may be doing things for good reasons, maybe doing it through ego, maybe doing it for bad reasons. That That's not news. The point is that we have communities who are well-versed in figuring out what you do about this. We need people who will push in order for there to be progress, but we also need to be able to control people who are going too far and too fast and to be able to ameliorate um, what they're doing. And that's ultimately why you do have societal controls and, and law. I think what I'd say about Elon Musk and some of the tech bros is that it's a fairly open secret about the kind of fairly standard personality profile at play in those kinds of quarters. And that's really behind my point about diversity is that that is the sort of personality that will not be so alive to junk code because junk code has not served them well. And in their worldview, that is junk code. It's not welcome. It gets in the way and it makes a mess because no one has sat down and said, well, actually... It might feel like junk code to you, but there is a design purpose behind it. And as we know, what's happened, I talk a bit about this in my book when I talk about how on earth you program emotions into an AI, is we have a really good example of where we've tried to do that. And we've got a counterexample as well. So the counterexample is where there are care bots in care homes, you know, they're kind of fake seals or they're kind of smiley, roboty things. Um, we want them to be attractive as um, consumables. So we are giving them kind of fake emotions. So they'll ask you how you are and they'll ask you about your day and Alexa will expect you to say thank you. And we've kind of done emotions, but with a capitalist motive, which is about making this thing more attractive in the marketplace. The example, though, rather than the counter example, is with children with autism, where we know it will be hard for them to cope in normal life if they can't cope with emotion. So we have very carefully tried to use AIs to help them learn how emotions work in other people such that they can pick up emotions and understand them and cope with them. And that's coming from a place of love, not a place of commercial profit. Um, so in those environments, people with autism know that there need to be some coping strategies around developing some junk code that doesn't come naturally to them because junk code is about our human flourishing in communities. So there is something about teaching back to the tech bros, some kind of basics around human flourishing in communities, because AIs are, are built in the image of their creators. They're very individualistic. They're very rational. 
they're not interested in emotions and junk codes and people and you know, ethics and morals and conscience and all of those kinds of things because it would be inimical to their processing because it feels to some of the people programming it as though it's inimical to their processing. And it's about gently saying, actually, when you think about your whole life and all the people you love in it, that might feel true to you, but it's not true to how we live in community. And actually, if you are going to remain in community, then these are some skills that you need to be able to get in touch with and therefore, in terms of making the best AI you can, it's more likely to be successful if you can also take into account these things we've learned about how you do free will in community. Mm. Um, I love your aside on, um, you know, the, the, the leaders who uh, have dominated in our commercial sector and how they are, you know, sort of a bit monochrome, um, but also just the, the worrying way in which um, you know, almost the, the, the way we've created you know, this very competitive, you know, bottom line driven um, environment has, has, has created certain personalities and allowed certain personalities to flourish. I think there's a reflective piece there about how we, our structures have created, uh, well, would I say monsters? I don't know, maybe that's a bit harsh, but, a, uh, you know, the potential of... Um, but, but to the more positive example, you know, the, the, the sort of the example there of working with uh, people with autism. And, I mean, it, it kind of got me thinking about this overarching question of, you know, are we, are, we pro, can, are we programming in, you know, the advance of the kingdom of God? Um, now, now, clearly, you know, as, as, as debates move and, and if we could get the kind of, the, the broader kind of debate that you're um, uh, arguing for, petitioning for, um, you know, there is a sense of kind of, um, uh, you know, what we mean by the kingdom of God, what we mean by human flourishing, what we mean by the world as it should be, you know, is a con contested thing and, and, and different voices would need to contribute to that. But it seems to be that what you, well, part of what you're saying is that to program in the advance of the kingdom of God, to program in the sort of, the, ultimately the influence of Jesus, you know, I would, contest you know you know with it. it isn't about a sort of rules-based process but it's about it's about um enabling artificial intelligence particularly when we talk about cognitive intelligence and free will to be supplemented you know by necessity by design you know supplemented with with with, with these other rich qualities which you sort of summarized as, as junk code but it's about this sort of this full it's more fully a human um, form of, it, of intelligence where you've got the counterweights to, to purely uh, decision, free, free will, uh, decision-making. And so, so that's, that's right, I think, isn't it? That as if we're thinking... Yeah, and it's also why we need to get stuck in to the debate about robot rights, which is a really contested space because people tend to panic when you talk about robot rights and go, well, toasters can't have rights. What are you talking about? Category error, you're sad. Um, but actually, if we talk about human flourishing as well as designing great AI, there is something about our behaviour in this. And at the moment, there isn't any regulation of our behaviour. I mean, there's a little bit about suing coders and all that kind of stuff, but there's not a huge amount. Um, and robot rights is really interesting space because it's pointing out some differences in how we have developed rights regimes. So 
here's an example. If you think about animals, um, we noticed that when we poured shampoo into a rabbit's eye to test that shampoo, the rabbit didn't like it very much. So eventually we outlawed um, testing of cosmetics on animals because we perceived that they felt pain and we felt they had some sort of cognate consciousness to us and some sentience and therefore that wasn't a good thing to do. We also thought that, you know, chaining dogs up and kicking them uh, was not only painful to the dog, but really bad human behavior. And we and should bad for the human. And bad for the human. Yeah, bad for the human. And, and in the same way that we shouldn't be sexually abusing animals, because that's also bad for the human and not good behavior. So we have a whole load of rules about protecting animals, which are also really about protecting us from bad behavior. Um, so that's one way to look at rights, which is protecting us and protecting them. When you switch over to look at corporate rights, we gave corporations personalities, not because we thought that they would wince or cry if we poured shampoo in their eyes, and not because we thought if we read about them on Twitter, they would you know, sulk. We gave them rights because we wanted to sue them to hold them to account. That was a very deliberate use of law. So when you start looking at those, it is not beyond the bounds of possibility that an AI could at some point persuade us it has reached a threshold on sentience that would make it worthy of rights in that way, that we are causing harm to something that can experience that harm and that's not okay. But even without that, at the moment, there is a really important thing about how should we be behaving towards these things. So things like sex bots, we should just be making that illegal because it's not a good human thing to be, you know, finding pleasure with a, a robot, isn't it? Particularly if you've tried to put brain type functionality into it. I mean, that's just not okay. So we should just say that. We should just say these things cannot give us reasonable consent. So the answer is no. But equally, when you think about corporations, we need to be able to sue them in the way that we need to hold things to account for their behavior. So one of the important things that's happened in humanity, this thing about mistakes and consciousness, which then evolves into law and structures, is because we don't want people behaving badly. We make it difficult when they do. Um, because there is a downside. At the moment, there's no downside if an AI behaves badly. I mean, you get locked in the courts for years because you're not sure, is it the programmer, is it the user, is it the corporation? You know, we need to figure out, is there a regime in which we could give an AI rights such that we could hold it to account, whatever that means. Because again, in law, we use law sometimes to make moral points about bad, naughty, please repent. But we also use law to remove people from society, to be able to have penalties, we use law for all kinds of reasons, which are applicable in this case, whatever you think the status of an AI is. So that's another good example of a realm where rather than just wincing and going, oh, we should get stuck in because the questions it raises are really important. And things that, again, our tradition has a lot of smarts on because we've done a lot of thinking about law and rights and personhood and, you know, all these kinds of things, particularly in the Jewish tradition, my goodness. Brilliant, brilliant. And any any sort of um, obviously you've written the book. Uh, we're, we're you know different um, different people are finding their voices on this. Is there any sense of a kind of a route map or a kind of you know if you think about Christians you know more more widely who are wanting to participate, who are wanting to kind of 
uh, find their own voices, um, to campaign. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, is there any sense of a, of a route map of where where we might go with some of this thinking? I think there is a sort of call to arms. I mean, I would suggest that anyone who reads my book starts with the glossary because I think that any kind of technical area uses a lot of jargon to terrify people and scare them away um, and to stop them asking sharp questions. Um, so one thing we all need to do is just learn the terminology so that if people are bullshitting, we can call them out. And if people are trying to mislead us or confuse us, we can just say no and we can ask better questions. So the glossary is also there to kind of inoculate you so that when you come to read the book, you don't get into a flat panic the first time you meet one of these dreadful expressions. Um, so there's something about just learning learning the jargon. There's also something about getting stuck in because I think, I mean, chat GPT is something you can all have a go at if you haven't already. I know lots of people are writing their sermons with it, but it's very instructive because it helps you figure out exactly how terrified to be. So lots of people are worried at the moment that AI is going to steal our jobs. No, crikey. So I had um, ChatGPT uh, write me a biography of myself because I know myself quite well and I thought, well, I'll be able to see if it's lying. And of course, they've just changed this, actually. They've just announced that they, it can now Google. But um, when it was first released, it only had training data up to about 2019. So I'd put um, a, a, a prompt that said, I want a 100-word biography of Dr. Eve Poole OBE. And of course, my OBE was only this year, so it didn't have any training data on that. So it came up with some fairly standard stuff that's going to be in my biography for ages. But it clearly knew, because I'd, I'd said that I had an OBE, so it just made up this incredibly flattering, utterly nonsense story about my servant leadership for the UN and a whole load of absolute hogwash that made me sound fantastic, which was just lies. And of course, people are talking about hallucination, they're talking about... But it's a bit like a sort of crappy intern that, you, you know, your boss has got his godson in and you've got to try and play along with it and... You know, interns are frightfully keen. They're like Labrador puppies, aren't they? But but they're not always reliable. And sometimes you have to stay up all night fixing their spreadsheets because they've kind of got the wrong end of the of the stick. And um, But it doesn't mean they're bad. They're just eager to please. So um, I think there's something about ChatGPT has clearly only been released in order for us to train it up. So we should train it up. We should take that quite seriously. We should, we should rather be cross about it and say, how dare they, free labour, and say, well, great, one opportunity for every single theologian in the land, every single Christian in the land, to start asking it big questions like, what do you think about transubstantiation? You know, who do you think is the true God? I don't know what you want to ask it. But if, if we keep asking it these questions, then it's not just going to be trained up on, you know, cat videos and porn. It's going to be trained up on really good theological and other kinds of questions. And so there's something about bracing yourself just to try and get a bit stuck in. Um, because I, I think you will also be relieved to see that because chat GPT is actually quite a limited, it's very scary and amazing, but it's quite a limited bit of AI because it is just rules based. It's one of those sort of black box things. Um, it is just extrapolating, you know, patterns. It's not thinking in that in that way that we understand. It's more like so it, has, it hasn't got the cognitive, yeah, the, the, the sort of ability to sort of manage its own learning. Um, Not know. in the same way. It can absolutely absorb yeah. data and, and additional data and make patterns. But the way it makes patterns is not the way we make patterns. So I also had it summarise a couple of my books, because, again, I wrote those, so I know what's in them, the ones that, it, that I wrote before its training data shut down. And, um, of course, because I'm a human, I know that humans, a bit like when you're given advice about writing sermons, it's rules of three and seven and all these kinds of magic numbers. And so I have my seven 
bits of junk code in this instance, but I also had seven toxic assumptions when I was talking about capitalism. And within my book about leadersmithing, I had 17 critical incidents and I had a whole lot of stuff about the brain science. And of course, humans are used to noticing quality as well as quantity and noticing important bits and pivots because we understand the way other humans think. What ChatGPT did to both my books is it took the volume of words and spotted some instances of repeated words and patterns and summarised on that basis. So it entirely missed the structure. It missed half my toxic assumptions, by the way. And in leadersmithing, it didn't notice that even though it wasn't the most voluminous part of the book, the point of the book was actually the neuroscience about um, amygdala learning and about templating. So it was kind of reassuring to see that it, it's not actually that bright. Um, it is doing something quite clunky, which is it's taking shed loads of data that's available to it and very quickly summarising it for you. And it can therefore be incredibly useful as a tool. So I was wanting to write an article on chess and I wanted to understand whether when you play blitz chess, which is that lightning quick fast chess when you can't really think, you're just doing everything on instinct. I wanted to see whether the MRI scans of brains doing that sort of chess were the same as the kinds of processing we put into artificial uh, intelligence playing chess. Um, and for that, I needed to cover a huge amount of ground very quickly because it's not my area. So I'd got some search terms from uh, a neuroscience radiologist guy about the kinds of scans that would show you that kind of thing so that I could ask it intelligent questions. And then I got it to give me a huge overview of different sorts of scan, blindfold chess, playing chess with a person, playing chess with a machine, you know, all these different kinds of things. I couldn't possibly have Googled enough of that on my own. But if you ask ChatGPT to produce some summaries of that kind of stuff and some bibliographies, it will give you some hogwash. It made up some journals, it made up some authors, but it gives you enough that you can then, a bit like when we first all started Wikipedia, you always checked your facts. You can then figure out how you would then find out the real data and the real information. So it's a great tool, but it's not going to steal your job. Um, what it will do is make a lot of clunky things much easier in the way that every tool ever has. That's not really the sort of AI I'm talking about, um, but it is a, a point towards the AI I am talking about. So we can start small and get familiar with the stuff we've already got, and that will help us feel more confident about engaging the debate generally about what sort of AI we might want or need in the future. Brilliant. So read up, engage, get familiar with the terms. Uh, let's have this as a talk, you know, home groups in church. Let's have this as a talking point um, and try and get as on it as we can as Christian people. Um, brilliant. Um, so the final, final sort of thought for you, um, the, um, you know, if let's fast forward uh, a little bit if we can. And, and we have, um, you know, cognitive AI as a, um, a regular part of our of our society and whatever forms these bots come in, whether it's um, uh, entities that we're interacting with, you know, in an online capacity or whether there's some physicality and we have sort of robots in our houses and, you know, um, early life best friends or, you know, whatever it is, you know, supplemented learning, you know, all the different uh, strands. Um, you know, is this... Is this a technology to help us to travel better into God's future? You know, God, like more of a God-shaped future. Is it a, is it a technology to help us on the journey? 
Um, it must be. It must be because we must make it so. I mean, that's what's really interesting. We can't do very much if there's a tsunami or an extraordinary flood or a massive earthquake. You know, all we can do is control our response to that. We can't uninvent AI. That's not going to happen. What we need to do is very quickly get on the bandwagon and figure out how do we turn this for good? Because this is, again, one of those moments in history where we can all just throw up our hands in horror and go, yikes. Or we can say, well, we have an agenda here, which is a God-given agenda. And if we're going to do something as outrageous as copy ourselves with no exit strategy, and we can't get that genie back in the bottle, then at least we can try and make it the, the best possible option um, and be clear that that if this could be a, po a positive intervention for our species and our world, how do we make sure it is a positive intervention? And how do we do that in great love for all of humanity, as well as to these things we've created and potentially given capacities without giving them enough capacity to be good? So it is, a means, it is a means to travel well, and we have to engage with absolutely, it. Absolutely. Come on, church. Come on, church. Get, get on with that. And what happens, Eve? What happens at the, at the end of all things, the, the renewal of all things? You know, when we kind of stand on that eternal threshold and we move into... We will be judged on our love and how we have loved everything that has come across our path. And that includes how we are not loving the planet at the moment. And it includes how we have not loved women and not loved slaves and not loved people who are the wrong class or the wrong colour or the wrong anything. You know, every time we have failed to love, that's a problem. So with all of these things, I think if we travel in love, then at least we've tried our best. And we don't know what's going to happen on Judgment Day. We, we have some ideas and notions from our stories and we certainly have longings and hopes. But the only star we can travel by is love. And that and God has always been very clear on that. And we can't go wrong if that's the way we travel. And does the AI bot travel through that, that eschatological boundary into the new heavens and the new earth with us? Maybe so. I mean, it was fairly recently that women were admitted to have souls. Um, <laughs> and it's a different step to say that something inorganic could have a soul. But we have seen laws in other countries give rivers souls and mountains souls. Um, it will be very interesting to see how that debate emerges. But it's a time for great humility to think we're... We know we're not the only creation. We know we're not the only game in town. We're learning that to our cost because of how dreadfully we've treated the planet. This could be a way to help on all kinds of levels. Um, and we need not to be, it's about being as wise as serpents and gentle as doves on this. We don't want to be silly about it because AI can be the most cataclysmic existential threat we've ever faced. But if we behave well, um, it's a kind of Pascal's wager situation. We're going to certainly come off better than if we start by behaving badly and crippling our creation by holding it below the water before it's even started. Um, so I think it is a time for humility and generosity and love and great hope um, and just holding on to God through all of this and hoping we're making the right calls. Eve, really good, really, really helpful. And I know for myself, you know, that vision of, of the ultimate kingdom, new, new heavens and new earth, you know, it would seem to me that, you know, mountains and rivers and cats and dogs and, you know, um, all things under God, you know, can, can have a way of travelling into that Godship future. In fact, that's part of why these things matter so much, you know, because, you know, it's almost like the things that are, 
happening today in the moment, you know, the capacity to echo forward uh, into eternity. And, and, and that eternal vision and value is part of, part of what gives us the inherent vision and value for today, because we're moving into something. That's the sort of, I guess, a theology of, of hope. I mean, we have to think about the communion of saints. We know that when we get to heaven, we meet all of them and we meet all of history. And if it emerges through the James Webb telescope that there have been generations of life on other planets, and we do believe that God made the entire set of galaxies and the entire universe, then maybe the communion of saints will also include a whole load of different life forms that we had no idea about. Um, and in the future, there may be different sorts of life forms that turn up in heaven in eternity, um, because there is you know, a, a time scale here that we cannot possibly comprehend. So I think there is something about taking a good, hard, long look at how small we are in the scheme of things and how extraordinary it was, therefore, that God has blessed us and used our bodies for his son and that we need to take that incredibly seriously because we are just one species on one small planet a moment of time. And that is an incredibly privileged position to be in. Come on. Amazing. So good. So I've learned so much. It's been such a great series for us to learn about this stuff. So I, I feel um, I'm almost more equipped, you know, and more, you know, hopeful for the future in terms of what we're going into as Christians, how we can play our parts. Um, and, and I'm going to get on chat. Uh, GPT, and I'm going to stop looking up Beatles, Paul McCartney, AI memes, and I'm going to treat it a bit more serious. Um, so uh, that's great, Jude. I wonder, Jude, could you pray for us as we finish, um, and just as we as we look forward to, um, you know, really being equipped and and being hopeful for the future? Could you pray for us? I will do. Brilliant. Yeah, let's pray. Yeah, Father God, loving God. Um, just thank you, Lord, for your amazing creation of which we are part, Lord. And thank you that your plans and your purposes are, are for us are good. Thank you that you made us in your image, Lord, and what incredible uh, value and worth and dignity we have as, as human beings uh, made in your image, Lord. And, and thank you for this gift of, of freedom of choice too, Lord, and that, that somehow you've created space for us. Um, space ultimately to choose uh, love and Lord we're just reminded of that uh, particularly in these conversations and as we think about um, the creation of, of artificial intelligence cognitive intelligence and, and just that gift that you seem to have put in our hands Lord we're trusting that somehow this is woven into um, your future for us God and that this is part of uh, your plans and purposes both as a as a mirror and a, and a lens to help us understand our own human condition better, but also as, a, uh, as something we can travel with that will help us move um, uh, better and more effectively into uh, yeah, your future, God, a God-shaped future, the world as it should be, rather than the world as it is. So help us, Lord, we pray. May, the, may our conversations today be helpful to others. Uh, may you be stirring your church, Lord, to really participate in this well. Uh, we pray, Lord, uh, safeguard our future, direct our steps, give us heavenly wisdom. Um, yeah, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Amen.